Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. We recently spoke with Andrew Bunting of the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society about garden resolutions and the Philadelphia Flower Show. And that show will be held this coming June. You can go back to episode 159 of the Garden Basics podcast to find out more about those topics. But we also talked about the interest in gravel gardening back east and in the Midwest. If you're a subscriber to the Garden Basics Beyond Basics newsletter, you heard about gravel gardening back on December 31st in that version of the online newsletter. But for the thousands of you who may not have listened to that discussion in the newsletter podcast, we have it for you here now on the Garden Basics podcast. Along with that, Debbie Flower and I will discuss if gravel gardening is really a good idea for those of us in warmer to downright hot climates. And by the way, don't confuse gravel gardening with rock gardening. It's very different. And we have quick tips for you on cool season fertilization. Is it necessary? We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. We are talking with Andrew Bunting. He is the Vice President of Public Gardens and Landscapes at the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, an internationally recognized organization that was uh, founded a long, long time ago. It's also the producer of the world-famous Philadelphia Flower Show. And Andrew, uh, thanks for joining us here on the Garden Basics podcast. Now, we touched a little bit about uh, reducing the need to water, and, I, and of course, water-wise gardening or the unfortunate term xeriscaping is is popular here in California or actually it's, sure. it's it's downright the law do you find that there is an interest back there that despite all the summer rain you get that people want to try water-wise gardening yeah we don't have the same drought situations that uh, a large part of California have but we do have periods of drought you know we might have you know a couple months where we we get hardly any water whatsoever. So I think there's for those who want to just reduce water in general, uh, that that type of gardening might be appealing. I think out here, it's actually more of a an aesthetic. Like you know, I love the kind of arid or kind of xeriscape gardens you see in you know Santa Barbara and Southern California. And, that, you know, so that type of aesthetic is one that you often don't see around here. So what's starting to gain in popularity, and I've seen it actually across, uh, I would say, in the eastern part of the United States. And you know, often where I look for trends is, what, you know, what are botanic gardens and arboreta doing? They're, they're often some of the trend-setting institutions. So, you know, there's some really good examples of, of gravel gardens. So these are gardens that either just plant into the native soil and then top, top dress with gravel or 
Like at my house, I actually excavated out about six inches of soil and put in gravel and kind of grow plants right right into the gravel and it grows through the gravel into the soil below. So one of the best gravel gardens, I think, in the entire United States is at a botanical garden called Old Brick Botanic Gardens in um, Madison, Wisconsin. And they have uh, multiple uh, gravel gardens kind of different, show, showing the public different ways in which they can use gravel aesthetically, as well as kind of the myriad of plants that you might grow in, in a gravel garden. And then out in this part of the country, there's some good public gardens like uh, Scott Arboretum at Swarthmore College uses uh, gravel in multiple locations. And then a fairly famous garden uh, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, Chanticleer, has a fairly extensive gravel garden. So it's, um, it's you know, I would say here it's almost more of a, a style of gardening that's gaining in popularity because it also affords you the opportunity to maybe grow types of plants that perhaps you would see more in California, but we don't see that much in gardens here. Things like yuccas, hardy cactus, uh, other succulent plants. Um, you know, a lot of the succulent, some succulent plants in our native garden soils with a lot of uh, water in the summer and humidity actually uh, don't do that well. So they really need a sharper drainage. So uh, gravel gardening uh, affords kind of that type of uh, habitat so that you can grow those plants more successfully. Yeah, you would almost need to, uh, like you are doing yourself, at least six inches of gravel, if not more, just to keep the root zone above the area where the water may puddle below the gravel. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, uh, you know, it, it obviously is a, can be a upfront a, a greater expense than kind of traditional gardening. But, you know, over time, it you know, you really cut down on on the water because of the type of plants that you're growing. And then, you know, what I've found with growing plants in like pure gravel is once they, once they've grown through and, and into the soil below that, that top, you know, say four to five inches of gravel is so inhospitable that you can hardly get any, any weed feeding into that top layer of gravel. Oh, give it time. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> the weeds, uh, you know, if, if somebody can figure out how to have a truly weed-free garden, that, that would be a major uh, yeah. trend. <laughs> Not going to happen. But, uh, what are some of the popular succulents there that can overwinter in those gardens back there? Yeah, so, you know, any of the, any of a number and probably most sedums, uh, hens and chicks, which are sempervivums, Quite a bit of ca- uh, cactus. They're actually hardy uh, here. Not not like your uh, Mexican type cactus, but uh, you know a lot of cactus that are native in higher elevation parts of the U.S., like in Colorado, Idaho, Wyoming. Uh, those are those are hardy here. Uh, quite a few cultivars and species uh, of of yuccas, but it's not everything. Um, not everything that goes in the gravel garden has to be a succulent. Like what, once you establish things like, um, you know, some of the different species of Rudbeckia or actually a lot of the prairie plants, a lot of the grasses and cone flowers and things like that once, because a lot of them have long tap roots to, to kind of survive in 
prairie type situations, which have, you know, a multitude of hostile conditions. Uh, once those established, they actually do quite well. Like um, in my gravel garden at home, I have a plant called the, the Threadleaf Blue Star Amsonia Hubrichtii. That, that does quite well. All the Baptistias, the false indigos, they have a fairly significant taproot and uh, also do uh, quite well. And what about the prickly pears? Oh, yeah, prickly pear for sure. Yep, there's, you know, there's different species of prickly pear, but there's actually one that's native to uh, the East Coast, mm. and that does well. Okay, that, that's Opuntia for those of you at home keeping score. And yeah. uh, out, out yeah. here, that's a weed. <laughs> so, you know, our cactus don't get to be the stature like you see in uh, California. They tend to be either uh, ground-covering types or maybe just get a foot or two tall, but not like like you would see on the West Coast where they can be, you know, almost tree-like. Andrew Bunting is with the Phil- the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. He is their vice president of public gardens and landscapes. And again, uh, more information online at phsonline.org. Andrew, thanks for uh, helping us get off to 2022 to a good gardening start. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, 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 gravel gardening. Does that apply to people in USDA Zone 9, people in the Southwest? Because gravel gardening is not rock gardening. That's an interesting, I'll say garden fad going on back east and Midwest, but how applicable is that to the warmer areas? Debbie Flower is here, our favorite retired college horticultural professor. And Debbie, basically on what we just heard, that's an interesting idea that they have going back there to be able to grow, say, drought-tolerant plants in four to five inches of uh, small rock. And they kind of get churlish when you call it rock. They want to call it, (laughs) you know, garden pebbles or pea rock or or something like that. Yes. Well, they certainly have some specifications for the rock to be used. Uh, They don't want it to be limestone because that will break down over time. And it should all be sized the same size. So Mm. it's not just going to a quarry and digging up a bunch of rock and throwing it in your truck and throwing it over the garden. It's size. So everything is, from what I've been reading and hearing, between a quarter or half inch in size. Yeah. And with smooth sides, too. With smooth sides, right. Uh, So it's a very specific type of rock. And it could be very expensive. It could be expensive, especially to get started. Yeah, four to five inches is quite a bit. Not to mention fun to move. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I have to say that when I have done house hunting in the past, I shy away from homes that have gravel on part of the or all of the landscape because I know that I need to garden and I need to plant things and dig them up and move them and all that fun stuff. And um, with gravel as the mulch, that makes it more difficult. When you're growing in that environment here in California or in the Southwest, what are the precautions that you have to take if indeed you do have a rock garden? Heat, I would think, would be a problem. There are some plants that prefer a a mulch of rock or uh, gravel, but four to five inches is not uh, what, what I would consider a mulch for those plants. The goal of gardening for me in a hot, dry climate is to create shade and cooler places in the garden in the summertime. And gravel will not allow that because gravel reflects heat and light, uh, especially depending on the color. 
And for really, really hot climates like you would find in the Imperial Valley of California or parts of Arizona, New Mexico, even even parts of uh, Colorado, I would think that uh, there's even more precautions. My husband is from Tucson, Arizona, and Tucson has been very aggressive about reducing use of landscape water. What most landscapes have, and in some places you're required to by your CCNRs, is gravel as a mulch. It is not four to five inches deep. It's just an inch or two. Uh, and it does. Uh, it is not sized like they're talking about in the, the more formal gravel gardens in the uh, Midwest and East. It is just uh, mined. You go, the landscape uh, mining company delivers it and, and either you spread it or they're people spread it as a mulch and those tend not to be white they're not really light colors that do lots of reflection they are more of the tans and grays which will do less reflection and then that the the result of using that gravel as a mulch is that you don't have grass and you don't have plants that survive in extremely high heat of which of course you're going to experience in the desert but can be ameliorated with somewhat with uh, an organic mulch that will hold more moisture in the soil. So the landscaping then is very southwestern, uh, which is lots of uh, cactus and trees that are native to the southwest. In that segment that we heard with Andrew Bunting, he talked about uh, the gravel gardens in Madison, Wisconsin, and and he said it's, it's one of the premier locations, and he mentioned the Ulbrick Botanical Gardens. And if you go online, and we'll have a link to it, to what they've done there as far as uh, putting in a a pebble garden. Uh, the Ulbrick Garden is in Wisconsin, which means they get summer rain. They get summer rain. Something we don't get anywhere. They have humidity. They're near Great Lakes. Yes. And that makes a huge difference, I think, in the success of these gardens. Uh, I have to say that in... In my Central Valley, California garden, which is very hot and dry, very hot and dry, uh, I use lots of organic mulch, but I have learned that there are some plants I cannot grow in that organic mulch because it holds too much moisture in the soil and potentially close to the, the stem. I try to keep it away from the stem, but I'm not in total control. And so some plants just don't do well in that environment. Other plants love it. And, and so I, it limits my plant palette. On the other side of it, a gravel mulch that's four to five inches deep is going to limit your plant palette regardless of where you do it. But in places where there is summer rain and humidity, you'll have a broader plant palette that you can plant in that four to five inches of of gravel. The link that we'll have refers to a PowerPoint that the director of the Ulbrick Botanical Garden did about their gravel gardens. And if you want to learn more about gravel gardening, you ought to listen to what he has to say, the plant palettes that can be used and the care that they take during the off season. And one thing that he pointed out was that the, uh, staff there do a big job in the wintertime of removing dead organic matter and making sure that there is nothing for weed seeds to lodge in. Right. Regardless of what you mulch with, weed seeds are going to land on that mulch. And if there's any organic matter or any source of water, they will germinate and grow. And that's, to me, it's more difficult to get the organic matter out of a gravel than to just let it melt into the existing organic mulch that I use in my gardens. By the way, in that uh, PowerPoint, 
he talks first about meadow gardens and then and it's it's a long powerpoint it's about over an hour start in the second half if you only want to hear about gravel gardens yeah about the last 15 minutes actually yeah it's, you, it's quite near the end yeah you can uh, see it and and you, you learn a lot uh, there, he had a, a lot of interesting tips there and he said that when they bring in plants one gallon plants from nurseries one thing they do is they scrape off the top two inches of soil because that's where you're going to find most weed seeds. He's probably right. You're going to find most weed seeds in the top of, of a container soil. But I, it sort of makes me shiver to remove the top two inches. There are going to be roots there, potentially feeder roots there, mm-hmm. that that you're going to expose and damage potentially, and they may die. In a harsh environment like uh, the Southwest or, or Central California in summer, that plant needs all the roots and moisture it can get. In a more forgiving environment like Madison, Wisconsin in summer, which has more mild temperatures than we do and has uh, summer rains and humidity, the plant may survive better. They are beautiful looking gardens back there. They are. They are. You know, more power to them if they can do that. I just think that in USDA Zone 9, especially, it would be a struggle. Nine and higher. Yeah. 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 If you want to try it, I'd say, well, try it in a small area mm-hmm. first. A small area that where you want. The plants that do well there are succulents, so plants mm-hmm. that s- store water themselves, hens and chicks, sedums, uh, dudleyas, those kinds of things, and uh, alpines, plants that grow mm-hmm. high. An alpine plant is a plant that grows high up on a mountain, potentially above the tree line, uh, where there's not enough soil to support a tree. And it's very, you have scree up there and scree is uh, broken down rock. So uh, those plants do very well in that area. So if you want to try uh, a section and they're very interesting, they can be very beautiful, they very interesting flowers and they tend to be smaller plants. So you can get a lot of them into a small space. It would make a really cool garden to put somewhere that you get up close near an outdoor sitting area or something. They also have a lot of ornamental grasses, which looked fabulous by year three. Yeah. Grasses. And he talked about prairie plants, which uh, grow in the Midwest, uh, and they have tap roots. Generally, tap roots don't, plants coming out of containers don't have tap roots. But the plants we're talking about here are herbaceous plants and grasses, and so they can regrow their tap root, uh, the grasses for sure. If you see pictures of prairie plants, I wouldn't... Call them so much tap roots as they just have a very uh, extensive root system. So again, the differences between a rock garden and a gravel garden, we out here in California are familiar with rock gardens. Rock gardens are shallower, maybe one inch or two inches worth of river rock, really inch and a half river rock. And often accented with larger rocks. Right. And the gravel garden is just that. It is made out of pea gravel or in the case of what they did back in Wisconsin, seven sixteenths of an inch of quartzite. Mm -hmm. And it has to be... Not sharp in order for you to be able to walk on it or more for your pets to walk on it without injury. Or work it with your hands. Yeah, or work it. Yeah, and that's the other thing, too, that he pointed out is that when they are cleaning up those areas in, in the wintertime, everybody has knee pads. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> knee pads are a good idea to get used to wearing when you're in the garden anyway. Uh, I can I can attest to that having had to have one of my knees replaced uh, because I didn't always wear knee pads. But the other thing, another point he made was that you don't taper the gravel to the edge of the garden. You have some sort of edging, and he shows you a whole bunch of different types of edging that are four to five inches tall. Mm. So the gravel remains consistently deep. 
That would be important. You need a, a barrier to keep it in place. Right. Too. So consider building sort of a little raised bed. Yes. For a, a, gravel. a gravel garden. Yeah. If you're going to try that. And again, it's going to be more expensive because you're using four to five inches worth. Yeah. And if you go out and price a ton of uh, pea gravel, um, you can borrow on your IRA, I guess, and, and pay for it, but don't do that. And delivery. And, yeah, and then shoveling it. And shoveling it, yeah. yeah. So uh, rock gardens, gravel gardens, if you're going to try it, try it on a small scale first. Yeah, see how it goes and let us know. Debbie Flower, thanks so much for uh, rocking down with us. Yeah, here. very interesting stuff, Fred. Thank you. We're glad to have Smart Pots on board supporting the Garden Basics podcast. Smart Pots, it's the original award-winning fabric planter. It's sold worldwide, and Smart Pots are proudly made 100% in the USA. Smart Pots come in a wide array of sizes and colors. If a frost or freeze is in the forecast, moving your frost tender plants that are in the Smart Pots that have handles make them easier to move closer to the house for added warmth, or you could even move them inside for the winter. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information about the complete line of Smart Pots lightweight, colorful fabric containers. And don't forget that slash Fred part, because on that page are details of discounts when you buy Smart Pots at Amazon. If you want to see them before you buy, Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. Have you taken a look at the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter yet? It's a deeper dive into what was discussed on the week's two podcasts, along with more great gardening information. Think of it as going beyond the basics. In the current edition of the newsletter, we fill in the gaps and tackle questions raised in this week's podcast. From Tuesday's episode 166, Debbie Flower warned us about using commercial potting soil in the ground around new plantings. Hmm? We'll delve into that one. From the Friday, February 11th podcast, episode 165, we do a deep dive into soil testing kits as well as online soil testing services, and we take a look at what your citrus tree leaves might be telling you about their health. You can find a link to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter, Beyond the Basics, in the podcast show notes, or at farmerfred.com, or by going to substack.com slash gardenbasics. Think of it as your garden resource that goes beyond the basics. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter, and it's free. Please subscribe and share it with your gardening friends and family. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter. And, by the way, thank you for listening. We have a quick tip for you. Debbie Flower is here, our favorite retired college horticultural professor. Let's talk a little bit about cool season annuals. Mm-hmm. They, in USDA zones 9 and 8 and parts of 7, they can perform. They can bloom. They can grow. Yes, we can have some very colorful gardens. Even in winter, even though the temperatures might be down in the 30s and 40s and 50s, the soil temperature is still... 40, 45 degrees, so there's some activity going there that... Right. Roots are still active. Not fast, but things are still going on. They're still able to absorb. Do you need, then, to fertilize cool season annuals? Need is a strong word, and it would apply to fertilizing anything, really. Plants make their own food, and they use nutrients that they get through the environment and absorb through their roots to make that food. 
The time to fertilize is when they show you that they don't have enough of those nutrients. And that is when they have very small new leaves and they're losing all of their older leaves down at the bottom or closer to the trunk. Uh, or they're all turning yellow. That would be a nitrogen deficiency. Or when you're seeing different uh, streaks of yellow, let's say, in the leaves, that could be a micronutrient deficiency. The plant should be flowering, producing flower buds and opening them, and it's not. Or the plant should be producing fruit, and the fruit should be expanding, and it's not. Those are deficiency symptoms, and that's when you apply nutrition, which in, in the form of fertilizer. In the cool season, the whole process, all those processes are very slow in the plant. And if you have soil that has been uh, mulched with organic matter for a long time, long enough that that organic matter has started to break down and release nutrients to the soil, you typically will not need to fertilize the winter annuals. That makes a lot of sense, too, uh, because mulch is a slow-release fertilizer. As it breaks down, it's feeding the soil. And if you've had that mulch for a long time, like you say, then your plants are slowly, slowly being fed. And I think we all prefer to be slowly, slowly fed. <laughs> yes. It's painful to eat too much at one sitting. Yeah, exactly. And a plant can show that symptom as well. Yes, they can. They can burn when you yeah. give them too much fertilizer. Yes, cool season annuals need nutrition, because they're alive and they're flowering or fruiting or whatever it is you, you, you have them for, or just even just growing green parts. But do we need to add fertilizer only if we see deficiency symptoms? And it can't hurt to do a soil test, too. Absolutely. To find out exactly what it needs. And you can buy soil tests that do more than just measure pH. The less expensive soil test kits will also measure nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Mm -hmm. But you can go beyond that and, and buy a more expensive soil test kit to uh, check for micronutrient deficiencies. Yes, you can. And if you have any sort of a chemistry interest or someone in your family does, it's lots of fun to, mm -hmm. to, to do these tests and you mix chemicals and shake things and add soil and time it and it changes color. It's lots of fun. Or if you were like me and a D student in high school <laughs> chemistry, you can send off a soil sample uh, to uh, inexpensive places that come back with the very extensive soil test reports. The University of Massachusetts Amherst and Colorado State University. Just do an Internet search for soil test uh, UMass Amherst or soil test uh, Colorado State. And the details will pop up on for $15, 20 $25. You can get a complete soil test. And they will get, give you the directions on how to take the soil samples, et cetera. Yes, they will. And uh, it's... Uh, follow them. If I, and follow them. Yes, exactly. Don't, don't do shortcuts. All right. Well, we've learned something about uh, cool season annuals. Feed them with mulch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Prepare your soil for them. There you go. Debbie, thank you. You're welcome. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday. It's brought to you by Smart Pots. Garden Basics is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes Apple, iHeart, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Google, Podcast Addict, Castbox, and Pocket Casts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.